One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. This episode may contain content not suitable for some audiences, including crimes against children, mentions of suicide, descriptions of a graphic nature, and adult language at times. Listener discretion is advised. Before I begin today's episode, which is the first of three parts, I just wanted to make you aware of a couple of things. The shocking nature of James's murder made headlines around the world at the time, so it is a well-known case. But for those of you who have never heard or have limited knowledge of this case, I need to make you aware that this story involves the violent death of a two-year-old child. However, even for those of you who are familiar with this story, I will warn you that this will be extremely difficult to listen to at times, as this case involves descriptions of a graphic nature It certainly won't be for everyone, so please bear this in mind before you begin the first of this three-part series. I will now begin today's episode. Welcome to part one. Friday the 12th of February 1993 started out as any other day for the Bulger family in Kirkby, Merseyside, England. Dad Ralph had his breakfast as usual, while Mum, Denise, attempted to feed their son James. James was always a smiley and cheeky boy, and breakfast time could be a challenge while he chattered away about whatever took his fancy that day. But without fail, James would be having Frosties. They were his favourite cereal. While most of the Frosties ended up on the floor, It was a delight to watch him attempt to prove his independence by feeding himself. James finished his breakfast, and Denise got James ready for the short walk around the corner to her mother's house, James's nana Eileen. Ralph was heading over to his brother-in-law's home that day to help out with a project. 
while Denise and James would be running errands with her sister-in-law and niece. But what was supposed to be a simple day of chores and projects with family would soon become the day the Bulgers' lives as they knew them ended. By that evening, their precious two-year-old boy would be missing without a trace, in circumstances which would come to shock the nation and indeed the world. The Bulger family lived in Kirkby, which is a small town in the borough of Knowlesley in Merseyside. It lies just six miles, or ten kilometres, northeast of Liverpool, and 180 miles, or 290 kilometres, northwest of London. With a population of just over 40,000 people, it strikes that fine balance between a metropolitan centre and a tight-knit community, due to the presence of Bronze Age architecture still visible in some parts of Kirkby. It is believed to have been founded in 870 AD and settled predominantly by Irish Catholics around 900 AD, whilst Kirkby had bountiful pastures primed for farming it predominantly housed factories and industrial buildings with the land changing hands numerous times over the years. During the Second World War, nearby Liverpool sustained much damage to its infrastructure and many homes had been left in ruins. So it fell to the Liverpool Corporation, or what we might consider the council these days to find alternatives for housing the displaced population. Given Kirkby's proximity to Liverpool, it was purchased from the Earl of Sefton in 1947 and transformed into a housing estate. By 1950, large-scale development was well underway and within five years, more than 10,000 homes had been built housing more than 52,000 people. But the rapid growth wasn't all good news. Whilst houses seemed to go up overnight, the infrastructure and amenities needed to support so many people were lacking. No shops were built until five years into the development and it took another four years for a pub to follow. The lack of foresight meant the area wasn't seen as desirable and most of the inhabitants were from Liverpool's poorest areas where housing had become overpriced and they weren't left with much choice but to move somewhere more affordable. Job prospects were also an important consideration for residents of Kirkby. The industrial estate which had been established during war times was the major business in the area, employing more than 26,000 people. This provided an additional draw to Kirkby during a time when steady work was hard to come by. With the increase in population, the residents of Kirkby wanted it to be designated as its own town. Such independence would have provided government benefits and funding to continue improving the amenities for residents. The proposal was rejected. It is thought 
that the supposed undesirable nature of the residents meant the local government didn't want any further attention drawn to the borough. Over the coming decades, interest in the area seemed to fizzle out. Plans for a supermarket and sports stadium were stalled and delayed again and again until they faded into distant memory. By the time James Bulger was born in 1993, the population of Kirkby had declined to less than 40,000 residents and the closest supermarket was still more than 20 minutes away. So when Denise had chores to run, she just bundled James into the car and set off for the New Strand Shopping Centre in Bootle. Ralph and Denise both grew up in Kirkby. Denise was the second of 13 children and therefore grew up with family as the centre of her world. While her family didn't have a lot of money, they had a home filled with love and laughter and plenty of chaos with so many children in the house. Both her parents were very involved in their children's lives and worked hard to give them a stable home. Living in their four-bedroom family home, it was a simple childhood where the children always had everything they needed but none of the extras. No expensive toys, no overseas holidays and no fancy clothes. In those days, the children played on the street from the time the sun rose until the sun set, never worrying about the danger that could be lurking in the shadows. With 25 years between Denise and her oldest sibling, there was always a baby or toddler around as the older children moved out and started families of their own. Denise loved being an auntie to all of them. Given that most of the family still lived within minutes of her parents' place, most days were spent congregating there with everyone helping each other out. Denise was always the first to offer to soothe a baby or to change a nappy or offer a feed and she loved nothing more than feeling those small eyes looking up into hers as their lids drooped and they fell into sleep. In fact, Denise was well known to wake a child up from their sleep just so they could fall asleep on her again once she had settled them down, much to their parents' annoyance. Denise knew from as early as she could remember that she wanted to have her own children one day and she knew exactly what type of mum she was going to be. She promised herself that she would never feel like she needed to put them down to sleep or to have them out of her sight for a minute, just so she would never miss a moment of those love-filled eyes. Given her love for all things babies, Denise wasn't too interested in school. There was nothing she really wanted in life except to be a mum, and to take care of her own children. So when she was 16, and her own mum needed to be taken care of after having surgery, Denise put her hand up to help. It would mean days off school, but Denise wasn't worried. But those days turned into weeks, and after a while, she realised that there was no point in going back, as she had missed so much of the school year already. 
Denise picked up a job at an ice cream factory. But before long, machines replaced the workers. And at 18 years old, Denise was left at a loose end once again. But that was all about to change. When, by chance, while on a night out with friends, Denise met Ralph Bulger at the local pub. Ralph was born and raised in Kirkby as the youngest of six children with three older brothers and two sisters. Whilst the family didn't have a lot of money, they never wanted for anything. There was plenty of love to go around and in amongst the typical sibling scraps, there was a tight familial bond between all members of the Bulger household. Ralph's parents had been some of the many whose homes in Liverpool had fallen into disrepair after the war and had been classified as slums. They gratefully accepted the opportunity to move to Kirkby into a brand new home built by the council. It was a huge upgrade from their cold, damp home in Liverpool and it represented a new start for the young family. Employment opportunities were strong, with the Kirkby Industrial Estate employing so many locals. But when the recession hit in the 1980s, the jobs dried up and the once thriving community and well-maintained buildings began to fall into disrepair. By then, Ralph was a teenager looking to secure his first job and start his life as an independent adult. But there were no jobs to be had, and despite qualifying in electrical, upholstering, bricklaying and truck driving, he was unable to find stable work. His parents had instilled in him a strong work ethic, and not being able to find somewhere to apply that dedication was demoralising. But he still had his family and stayed close by, choosing not to follow many of his mates to the big centres of London and Liverpool in their efforts to find employment. He was 18 and having a few drinks with friends at the pub when he locked eyes with Denise from across the room. He first noticed Denise's wide smile and beautiful bright blue eyes. So, sucking up the courage to talk to her, he crossed the room and asked her to dance. Denise said yes, and before the night was over, Ralph was besotted with her wicked sense of humour and big personality. As they say, the rest is history, and before long, the couple were a permanent item. Ralph was kind and sweet, and while he didn't talk much, he seemed just as keen to start a family as Denise was. Within weeks, they decided to move in together and secured a small bedsit, which would become their first home. The home they shared was a small place, just a hallway, a bathroom, and a room which housed the kitchen and bedroom in one space what we might call a studio these days. Even with the limited space, Denise set about making it a welcoming and cosy home, filling it with goods gifted by family and friends. Ralph worked a security job, 
while Denise picked up odd jobs here and there, while still spending time looking after her siblings' children when they needed her. It wasn't long before Denise got the news that she had always wanted. At 20 years old, she was finally pregnant. Initially, the news came as a shock to her family. They knew Denise was desperate for children, but Ralph and Denise weren't married, and in those days, it just wasn't the proper way to go about things. But once they saw the excitement of the couple, they couldn't help but celebrate with them. The pregnancy went by with no complications, and Denise relished the kicks and flutters she could feel as the baby moved inside her. As her tummy swelled, she spoke to her unborn child, whispering of her hopes and dreams, and the love she felt for the baby she had never met. In preparation for bringing their little one home, Denise set up all the baby supplies that had been handed down to her by siblings. She washed all the baby's clothes and dusted off the pram. But Ralph and Denise's home would never hold their unborn child. On the morning of her delivery, Denise felt the baby move just like every other day. Ralph drove her to the hospital where her waters were broken and contractions began. But when the monitor was put on her tummy, the midwives could not find a heartbeat. In a panic, the doctors examined Denise more closely, but they still couldn't detect any movement and told Denise and Ralph that they believed their baby had died. There was a slim chance that they'd got it wrong, and it was this hope that got Denise through her delivery. But sadly, on the 22nd of February 1989, Kirsty Bulger was born without a heartbeat. Denise was able to hold her little girl after the delivery, and she marvelled at her perfectly formed features and plump body. There was no explanation for why Kirsty had passed away, and Ralph and Denise both agreed that they didn't want her tiny body to be autopsied. For hours, they just sat together in a state of shock, until Ralph broke the silence with a few simple words. Denise, will you marry me? They hugged and cried, but mostly they were grateful to have each other during this darkest time. Two days later, they left the hospital empty-handed and returned to a home filled with reminders of the child they would never bring home. The pain of losing their daughter was raw and unyielding, the kind of pain that lives in your bones and that no amount of future joy or happiness can eliminate. Denise remembers saying to herself at this time, Today is the worst day of your life, Denise. It will never get worse than this. With this heart-wrenching loss as the backdrop, Denise and Ralph attempted to get on with their lives. Ralph threw himself into work, but Denise struggled to get back to a sense of normal. She couldn't even face being around her siblings' children anymore, where once she had been the first to volunteer to help. 
she was consumed by thoughts of Kirsty and what it would have felt like to hold her, to nurse her and love her. Losing a child when you have carried them for nine months means losing not only them as a person, but all the hopes and dreams you had held for their lives. Who would they become? What would they look like? And what would they be interested in? Losing a child is all-consuming, and for Denise, there was only one thought that got her through those dark times. She was determined to have another baby of her own in her arms. Four months after Kirsty's death, her wish came true when Denise and Ralph found out that they were pregnant for a second time. Off the back of this news, the couple decided to make their relationship official and they married in September 1989, six months before the baby was due. But this time, the pregnancy felt different. There was no preparing the home with baby things, no washing clothes, and no excitement over the baby's movements. Denise analysed and scrutinised absolutely everything. She was terrified of losing her baby. They never had found out what caused Kirsty's stillbirth, and so there was no way of knowing what they should or shouldn't do differently. By the time delivery day came around, Denise and Ralph were a bundle of nerves, but this time, the birth went exactly as it was supposed to. The doctors announced that they had a little boy. On the 16th of March 1990, James Patrick Bulger was born, and he was perfect. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improves definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. James was born with bright blue eyes, blonde hair and beautifully smooth skin. He was named after Ralph's father who had passed away from cancer not long before his grandson's birth. His lungs were fully functioning, as everyone could tell by the fact that he screamed from the second he arrived and for the first few months of his life. He struggled with colic, and no matter the soothing or position he was held, he couldn't seem to get comfortable. 
but Denise didn't mind the long nights or the bone-deep exhaustion. The only thing that bothered her was not being able to soothe her baby or take away his pain. Day after day, she watched as his little body writhed in pain. When it got too much, she would drag herself to one of her siblings' homes, with James in his pram, hoping they could help. But even through the worst of it, Denise loved being James's mum. When she looked down at her perfect little boy and he stared back into her eyes, she remembered that this is what it was all about, that all the pain of losing Kirsty had led her to this. When she held James on her chest as he fell asleep, she knew that everything was exactly as it was supposed to be. For Ralph, the experience of fatherhood was just the same, though he was out most days trying to find work. Somehow, he managed to sleep through many of the long nights when James and Denise were up all hours trying to get settled. The couple was still young and Ralph's friends were enjoying their youth. When he was home, he was very hands-on and devoted to James. But increasingly, Ralph would go out with his mates drinking. One night out would stretch into two and three before Denise would see him again. But Denise's mind was otherwise occupied, and she didn't dwell on thoughts of Ralph. James was her sole focus, and as his mother, she wanted to nurse him through his pain. And then, one day, it all just seemed to stop. The colic was gone, and the real James emerged. A boy who was full of smiles and giggles from the second he woke up until the moment he went to sleep. Before long, he learned how to roll over and then sit up all on his own. When he started crawling and taking his first steps, Denise and Ralph had to baby-proof the flat because he was so quick at grabbing everything within reach and pulling it to the floor. Most days followed the same routine in the Bulger household. Denise and James would wake first and get washed. After breakfast, which was a somewhat messy affair, the pair would then bundle up into the pram and visit Denise's mum's home, which was just a short stroll around the corner. On any given day, at least one or more of her siblings would be there, and they would spend the day together with James playing gleefully with his cousins. James was never out of Denise's sight for more than a toilet break or to put the kettle on for a cup of tea. The two were inseparable, like two halves of a whole. James never went to daycare or babysitters. Denise had all the support she needed from her huge family, whom she saw every day. It is this aspect of James's life that made his disappearance all the more heartbreaking. Even as he grew into his second year of life, James didn't have tantrums or meltdowns, and he was never grumpy, even when he was desperately tired. He had a cheeky smile that seemed to reach from ear to ear, and he never had any trouble sharing his toys. 
But he did have a cheeky and mischievous side. No matter who they were, everyone cooled over James. His megawatt smile would light up the room. When he started to move on his own, he'd give the adults a sly grin before pulling a shelf down or touching something that he knew he shouldn't and no one could ever stay angry for long. He just had that effect on people. James could get away with anything. He loved to tear around at his nan's house. There wasn't much room at his home, and once he learned to run, he never seemed to walk again, always moving at a sprint. Given he had spent his whole life around other children and adults... James was a trusting child and wasn't worried about being surrounded by lots of noise and fuss. His favourite toy was anything that had wheels. From the go-kart he was given for Christmas to the trike on his second birthday. In that second year of life, his babyhood blonde locks grew into dark curls, but his bright blue eyes stayed the same bar a brown streak that developed on one iris. He started looking less like a toddler and more like a young boy, and Denise's heart overflowed with pride every time she looked at him. His dad loved to take James to play ball in the local park or out on his go-kart. Given Ralph's skills with tools he lovingly crafted James his very own big boy chair, which became his favourite spot to sit and watch TV or eat his meals. James was never much into talking, but he managed to communicate well enough by pointing or singing. He babbled his ABCs and loved his quiet time with Denise each night before bed when she would read one of his favourite stories. He adored music and dancing with his mum in the middle of the lounge, particularly when she put her own favourite Michael Jackson tracks on. Between his doting mum, his hands-on dad, and the many aunties, uncles and cousins in his daily life, James was never short on love or attention. He loved to make others smile and laugh, and when they did, it encouraged him even more and he'd fly about the room, making them laugh even harder. It seemed like the only time James was quiet was when he was asleep, which he did, like everything else in his life, hard and fast. He would fall asleep quickly and wake up just as energised, ready to start a brand new day. While Ralph looked for work... Denise and James spent every single day together, starting with James's favourite Frosties for breakfast before heading over to Denise's mum's house. Friday the 12th of February 1993 was no different, except it was to become the last day bright-eyed James and his doting mum would be together. When Denise went out with James, she always took the pram, even if it was just around the corner for milk or to drop something off at her mum's. While he could walk perfectly well, 
James was at that age where he could just pull in any direction at any moment. Like most two-year-olds, everything new was fascinating and it made life much easier when they used the pram. That day, Denise had her typical list of chores to tick off before the weekend while Ralph was planning on helping Denise's brother Paul put together some new furniture at his house. They considered James going with his dad, but decided his inquisitive mind would get him into trouble with with all the tools and equipment they would be using. Denise dressed James in a grey tracksuit with a white stripe down the side, white socks and trainers with black laces, an outfit she would later have to recall in detail many times. Given it was freezing outside... She added his blue jacket with a hood and clipped him into his pram. They set off for the short walk to her mum's, where Paul would pick up Ralph and drop off his fiancée Nicole and niece Vanessa, who would likely spend the day with Denise. Vanessa was not much older than James, and the two got along swimmingly. As the morning rolled into lunchtime, Nicola and Denise decided to take the two children and head off to the Strand Shopping Centre in Bootle, which offered more options than their local small stores. Denise bundled James up again and stood in the doorway as she contemplated taking the pram. Denise always took the pram. Inexplicably, on this day, at this moment, she decided that she was only popping into the shops for a short time and James could walk just this once. At 1.45pm, the group arrived at the shops. Given it was a Friday, the mall was teeming with people making preparations for the weekend. James jumped from the car, excited that for once he was allowed to walk on his own, holding his mum's hand, mind you but this was really big boy territory. As they walked through the mall, every now and then he would slip his hand out of Denise's and run ahead and she would have to run after him and scoop him up. When it happened one too many times, Denise said to him, Stop running away. You are getting naughty now and I'm not happy. That seemed to calm him down and he didn't run off after that. Denise habitually took a list when she went shopping. On this day, given how far they had to drive to the shops, she didn't want to forget anything. After collecting a few things, the two kids seemed to have reached their limit. Without the pram, their little legs were tired. Nicola and Denise decided to make one final stop at the butchery to pick up some pork chops for Paul and Ralph to have for tea. Whilst the butcher wrapped them up in paper, she let go of James's hand to grab her purse out of her bag. The butcher handed the package over and Denise paid. As she put her purse back into her bag, she looked down at James, but James wasn't there. Her heart stopped, and she immediately shouted, Where is James? 
she looked over to where Nicola and Vanessa were standing, hoping James was playing with his cousin. But with a start, she realised he wasn't in the butcher shop at all. It was only a small store, and there was just one other customer and Nicola. Denise ran out of the store and called his name, but there was no answer. It was now 3.30pm on a Friday and the shops were heaving. Denise couldn't decide which way to go to search for her boy, but eventually she had to choose one. She chose left. Frantically, Nicola and Denise searched the stores around the butchery. In vain, she called out his name, but her cries were swallowed by other shoppers. Denise tried to reassure herself that James was a smart boy. He had probably tried to find someone to help him as he was such a trusting boy. Or maybe he had somehow walked to the car on his own when he realised that he had lost his mum. Or maybe he was playing a game and hiding in one of the stores. She raced down to the service desk and breathlessly demanded that they make an announcement over the speaker system. She wanted them to shut the shops and search for her boy. Denise was in a state, and she was offered a seat in the security office, but there was no way that she was going to stop searching for James until he was back by her side. She made her way back to the butchery, stopping everyone on the way and asking if they had seen her son. She described his outfit, his hair, his eyes, all the features of her innocent two-year-old, just a month shy of his third birthday. Well-meaning shop owners told Denise he had been found in another store, only for her to arrive and find that they were mistaken. Security officers tried to calm her down, but Denise was hysterical in the desperate hunt for James. He was just two years old. He couldn't have gotten far. The seconds stretched into minutes, and then almost an hour had passed with no sign of James. The police were alerted and arrived promptly to the mall, though their attitude was fairly relaxed at that point. Everyone assumed it was just another case of a mischievous toddler running off from his mother and that he would soon be discovered safe and well. Denise was transported to the local police station where the search would be coordinated from, while officers combed the mall yet again. Meanwhile, Ralph returned to Denise's mother's home that afternoon, none the wiser to the disappearance of his son. This was the age before mobile phones, and many households in the area couldn't afford a landline, Denise and Ralph included. When he didn't immediately see Denise or James, he assumed they had already returned home without him. That was, until his mother-in-law told him that there was a message on the machine that James had gone missing and Ralph needed to get to Marsh Lane Police Station as soon as possible. What do you mean? How can he be missing, for God's sake? In a state of shock, he ran to his brother's house pleading for a lift to the station. By the time Ralph arrived, the search for James had kicked into high gear. The mall had since closed for the day, 
and yet there had been no sign of the cheeky blue-eyed boy. No one wanted to say it out loud, but the circumstances of his disappearance and the length of time he had been gone were looking more and more suspicious. The police were keeping all their options open, including considering that someone had taken James right from underneath his mother's nose. As Ralph was arriving at the station, Denise was being questioned by detectives in another room. She was asked to recall the events of that day for what felt like the hundredth time. She was also asked probing questions about her relationship with James, how much time they spent together, how often did she let him out of her sight, and strangely, had he ever been on a bus on his own. While procedure surely dictates parents need to be the first to answer questions, it felt to Denise like every minute spent in that room was a minute wasted in the search for her child. She was at a loss to describe how deeply she loved her boy and to convince them that she would never hurt him. After four hours of questioning, Denise was finally allowed to see Ralph. They immediately embraced in a hug filled with pain and helplessness. By now, James had been missing for almost six hours. The couple were determined to find their little boy. When they walked out of the station together, there were police patrol cars everywhere. Loudspeakers were being used to broadcast James's disappearance to the neighbourhood in the hopes that someone had seen a little boy wandering alone. A police helicopter scoured the streets from above and more than 100 officers were searching for James on foot. As the night closed in and the temperature dropped, family and friends, as well as members of the community, volunteered to aid in the search. There was no doubt in their minds that the little boy would soon be found. James's story was broadcast on the local news, and soon even the national media picked up on the story. They had no way of knowing the horrors that would unfold in the days to come. The first lead came in that night at 10pm, when a woman who had seen the story on the news reported that she had observed a young child crying by the banks of the Leeds-Liverpool Canal, which ran alongside the mall. A dive team was scrambled, but they couldn't start searching the waterway until the sun rose the next day due to the low visibility in the dark. Later that night, officers asked Ralph and Denise to return to the station. They hoped against hope that the officers had some good news to share. Instead, they were asked to sit down while they were shown a series of CCTV images taken from the mall that day and point out anything or anyone that seemed familiar. In a single frame, taken from a camera that looked down upon the entrance of the butchery, young James could be seen walking out of the shop on his own. Both Denise and Ralph identified him instantly. 
The next frame, taken just seconds later, showed Denise running from the store after realising her son was gone. It certainly put paid to the idea that Denise had had anything to do with his disappearance, but it didn't bring them any closer to finding James. After looking through the images and finding nothing further, the investigators encouraged the couple to go home and get some rest, while the remainder of the hundreds of hours of CCTV footage from the mall was combed through. They returned to Denise's mother's home as advised. Eileen was the only person they knew with a landline phone, and that was the only way they could receive updates in the search. But neither of them could rest. They were too wound up with worry and fear for their son, and at around 1am, they returned to Bootle to participate in the search for James. As the sun rose and the divers began searching the canal, Ralph and Denise headed back to the police station to find out the latest in their son's disappearance. What they were about to be told would blow the case wide open. Officers had been working through the night, pulling the CCTV footage apart frame by frame. They had found more images of James... But he was not alone. Their worst fears were confirmed. James had not gone missing. He had been taken. Thank you for listening to today's episode. For those of you subscribed to True Crime Britain on Patreon, all three parts of these series are available for you to listen to now. If this is your first time listening and you didn't already know, you can get ad-free, early release and bonus episodes of True Crime Britain, as well as more great benefits, for just £2.50 a month. Just visit www.patreon.com forward slash truecrimebritain. I will be back with you next Wednesday with part two of this three-part series. Have a great week, and please stay safe. If you are affected by any of the content featured in today's episode, please see the show notes or visit www.truecrimebritain.com where you can find links to further support. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.